Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dungeon Dive Hobbycast. Daniel here. I hope you're doing well, and if you're not, I hope you are soon. Okay, today uh, we are going to continue our exploration of all things horror, and I am going to be discussing my top 10 horror books of all time. Uh, this was really hard for me to do. Uh, it was really hard for me to put these 10 books in an order. All of these books could be number one. Uh, you might think of this list as a top 10 with every single one of these books tying for number one. Uh, man, it was really difficult. And it, uh, most of these books are books that I have discussed on the channel before, but never all together in one place. And I've never put them in any kind of order. So um, if you you might hear some repeat uh, discussion from me, but uh, that's just kind of how it goes. But yeah, so let's get right into it. We're just going to go through the top 10. And I'm also going to read a small excerpt from each of the books as we go. Okay, so coming in at number 10, we have uh, Some of Your Blood by Theodore Sturgeon. And this was originally published in 1961. Uh, the back of the book here says, Theodore Sturgeon's dark and foreboding look at the vampire myth was an instant classic when, when originally published in 1956. Oh, 1956. Did I say hmm, conflicting uh, publishing information? I was doing some research and copyright 1961. Okay, so the back of the book might have a mistake there. Uh, but this says, uh, when George Smith is arrested for assaulting a senior officer, a military psychiatrist is assigned to the case. The secret of George's past is unearthed and a history of bloodlust and murder. So Sturgeon is a very complex and deeply emotive writer, not afraid to tackle hard subjects. He's written a story, a novel about a god coming to earth to teach humanity love through pornographic sex. He was one of the first authors to tackle the subject of homosexuality in a positive light. He's a great humanist. He loved the potential good of mankind. And Some of Your Blood is a very complex novel. It is told in a variety of styles ranging from fourth wall breaking, breaking information from the author to first person, person narration to an epistolatory exchange of letters and medical documents. And it tells the story of George Smith, a man who just might be a non-supernatural vampire. Uh, like most of Sturgeon's stories, it is more concerned about the characters than it is the plot. This is a book full of pathos and one that explores the entire gamut of human emotion. I'm going to read a bit from the introduction here. And this says, But first, a word. You know the way. You have the key. And it is your privilege. Go to the home of Dr. Philip Outerbridge. Go on in. You have the key. Climb the stairs. Walk to the end of the corridor and turn left. This is Dr. Phil's study, and a very comfortable and well-appointed one it is. Books, couch, books, desks, lamp, books, books. Go to the desk. Sit down. It's all right. Open the lower right drawer. It's one of those deep double drawers. It's locked, but you have the key. Go ahead. Pull it open. More than that. All the way. That's it. See all those file folders? A solid mass of them? Notice how they are held in a sort of box frame? We'll lift it out better get up it's heavy there underneath lying flat are half dozen folders just plain file folders 
Perhaps they are there to level up the main box frame. Well, they certainly do that. Perhaps too they are there because they are hidden, concealed, secret. Both perhapses could be true. And perhaps they are there because they are valuable, now or later. Value is money. Value is knowledge. Value is entertainment, sentiment, nostalgia. And that perhaps to the others. It does not destroy them. And bear in mind that the six folders, any of the six, might be any or all of these things. You may look at one of them. The second one from the top, you will note that it, like the others, is marked with Dr. Outerbridge's name and in large red capitals, personal, confidential, private. But go ahead, go right ahead, take it out, replace the box frame, close the drawer, light the lamp, make yourself comfortable. You may read through the papers in this folder. Yeah, just a fantastic introduction. Theodore Sturgeon is amazing. Very under-read author these days. He has not, his popularity really has not continued into the modern day, and I don't know why. He was a very progressive author, so his politics still ring true today. Um, just a fantastic writer, great ideas, very entertaining, and very um, emotional. Okay, so coming in next at uh, number nine is uh, Teatro Grotesco by Thomas Ligotti. And uh, this was published in 2008. Uh, Ligotti is kind of a famous uh, uh, recluse. Uh, very little is known about him. He hasn't published anything in many, many years. Uh, some, can, some consider him like a third pillar of American literary horror, along with Poe and Lovecraft. His, story, his stories have a way of sneaking up on you, and before you realize it, your mind is put in a state of total unease. Uh, Ligotti has also worked on a few collaborations with David Tibet and Current 93, and they are utterly haunting. Uh, Thomas Ligotti, um, the, the, or I should say that the Teatro Grotesco is Thomas Ligotti's most consistent collection. And it contains a number of stories that exemplify many of his common themes, such as liminal spaces, uh, corporate workplace horror, and unnatural settings full of uh, dread. The standout stories in this collection are The Red Tower, My Case for rep rep Retributive Action, Our Temporary Supervisor, and The Shadow, The Darkness. Um, I am going to read a little excerpt here from my case for retributive action. This is an example of what Ligotti called his corporate horror. And he was really fascinated with a kind of horror that would manifest itself in corporate offices of America. It was my first day working as a processor of forms in a storefront office. As soon as I entered the place, before I had a chance to close the door behind me or take a single step inside, the rachitic individual wearing mismatched clothes and eyeglasses with frames far too small for his balding head came hopping around his desk to greet me. He spoke excitedly, his words tumbling over themselves, saying, Welcome, welcome, I'm Rebello. Uh, allow me, if you will, to help you get your bearings around here. Sorry, there's no coat rack or anything. You can just use that empty desk. Now, I think you've known me long enough, my friend, to realize that I'm anything but a snob or someone who by temperament carries around a superior attitude towards others. If for no other reason, then I simply lack the surplus energy required for that sort of behavior. So I smiled and tried to introduce myself. 
but Rebello continued to inundate me with his patter. Uh, did you bring what they told you? He asked, glancing down at my briefcase hanging from my right hand. We have to provide our own supplies around here. I'm sure you were told that much. He continued before I could get a word in. Then he turned his head slightly to sneak a glance around the storefront office, which consisted of eight desks, only half of them occupied, surrounded by towering rows of filing cabinets that came within a few feet of the ceiling. Don't make any plans for lunch, he said. I'm going to take you someplace. There are some things you might want to know. Information, anecdotes. There's one particular anecdote, but we'll let that wait. You'll need to get your bearings around here. Yeah, just it's just kind of like the horror of a first day at a weird uh, place of employment. Uh, Legati is so good at writing about that kind of just that, that weird feeling of corporate office life. Uh, fantastic author. Highly, highly recommended. Okay, on number eight, this is definitely a book that I have mentioned multiple times on the Dungeon Dive before. And uh, that is from 1999, and that is uh, The Divinity Student by Michael Sisko. So Sisko is one of the first authors of the new weird, the, the Legati Circle, uh, championed by the likes of Legati and uh, Jeff and Anne Vandermeer. Uh, Legati said of Sisko, uh, quote, A festival of unrealities, an entrancing body of hallucinations mutilated with surgical precision by a masterful literary maniac. That's what Ligotti had to say about the divinity student. Um, He's one of the more prolific authors of this crowd, and he releases books on a regular basis, uh, kind of like one a year or one every other year. Although he has moved further outside the realms of horror, Um, Lately, he's written books about uh, bizarre economics in which money is a living thing, and he's written a fake textbook about unlearning language. He's very experimental in nature, although The Divinity Student is one of his more uh, straightforward stories, or at least as straightforward as Sisko can get. Um, In this novella, the main character is The Divinity Student. He dies and his body is cut open and then stuffed with the pages of old books. He is brought back to life and sent to the city of San Beneficio to be a collector of unknown words. Uh, The book is absolutely overflowing with dark and beautiful imagery, including a sequence where the divinity student is running along the rooftops of the city, hopping from one roof to the next at such an insane speed that he creates a vortex around him that disrupts antennas and chimneys and all kinds of things. I'm going to read a little excerpt just from the very beginning of the book here. Uh, this is after he has been struck by lightning and he's laying dying. He, he, he's dead and laying on a hill. And, it says, and now they're finding him. Hands take him up. They make off down the slope in the mud with his body. The ground levels and the trees close in like clouds and splatter and spatter them with big drops of rain. They carry him away to a low building enmeshed in trees and the shadows of trees. Quickly they bring him inside, lay him across two sawhorses and start cutting at him. They gut him like a fish, cut open from throat to waist. Red hands pull his ribs apart, head and shoulders hanging down, his arms lying flat on the ground, tug back and forth as they empty him out. They dump his contents, cooked and steaming on the floor, and bring up sacks of books and manila folders, tearing out pages and shuffling out sheets of paper all covered with writing, stuffing them inside, tamping them down behind his ribs, and crushing them together in his abdomen, 
What pages they select and what books they tear are of little importance, only that he can be completely filled up with writing to bring him back, to set him to the task. Then they suture him, shut again, drag him to the tub, his arms and legs dangling and catching on things, overturning tables and chairs, and dump him in the water, slopping blue water on, grain, on gray stone pavings, and together they draw breath and drop open their mouth, screaming noiselessly as they shove their face under the running tap and pushing him full under the water with their red hands under their wings. The divinity student twitches, lashing water over the lip of the tub, gaping. They push him down harder. He jerks to one side. They turn the spigot up full bore and shove his face into the stream. He thrashes. His body goes livid and white. Then his eyes and mouth snap open and gape wide all, wide, all screaming without sound. So yeah, so that was uh, The Divinity Student by Michael Sisko. Okay, so coming up at number seven, uh, probably the oldest uh, single collection here, and that is The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. And this was originally published in 1895. So this is one of the earliest examples of weird fiction and still one of the best. Uh, Cham Chambers wrote a lot of historical fiction and a number of collections of supernatural tales. His collection In Search of the Unknown and Police could be seen as kind of a genesis of X-Files or cryptozoology type stories. Uh, the King in Yellow ranks up there with, the, with uh, Cthulhu in terms of popularity in modern pop culture. Chambers uh, took bits and lore and history created by Ambrose Bierce and used those as the basis for his own mythology like so many other authors have done with his work and the work of the Lovecraft Circle. Now, the stories in The King in Yellow have been incorporated into the Cthulhu mythos and used in countless board games and have inspired a number of creepypasta internet lore stories. Uh, the King in Yellow itself is a play or a book that is said to cause people to go insane when they read it. Um, it's all about the King in Yellow and his yellow sign. The standout stories are The Repairer of Reputations, the Court of the Dragon, and the Yellow Sign. These stories focus on sanity, paranoia, and really a sense of not belonging to the world in which you live. I'm going to read a little bit of uh, the, the Repairer of Reputations. And it says, The fall from my horse had fortunately left, left no evil results. On the contrary, it had changed my whole character for the better. From a lazy young man about town, I had become active, energetic, temperate, and above all, oh, above all else, ambitious. There was only one thing which troubled me. I laughed at my own uneasiness, and yet it troubled me. During my convalescence, I had bought, I had bought and read for the first time The King in Yellow. I remember after finishing the first act that it occurred to me that I had better stop. I started up and flung the book into the fireplace. The volume struck the barred grate and fell open on the hearth in the firelight. If I had not caught a glimpse of that opening words in the second act, I should never have finished it. But I stooped to pick it up. My eyes became riveted to the open page, 
and with a cry of terror, or perhaps it was of joy so poignant that I suffered in every nerve, I snatched the thing out of the coals and crept to my bedroom where I read it and reread it, and wept and laughed and trembled with horror, which at times assails me yet. This is the thing that troubles me, for I cannot forget Carcosa, where black stars hang in the heavens, where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon, when the twin suns sink into the lake of holly, and my mind will bear forever the memory of the pallid mask. Oh man, so great. Just such a, uh, like, pretty much like the genesis for that kind of fiction right there. Just such an excellent story. One of my all-time favorite short stories. Okay, so that was uh, The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. And now number six, we have uh, Dark Harvest by Norman Partridge. Uh, and that was originally published in 2006. Norman Partridge, an author of what some might call a hard-boiled American horror. Yeah, he has also written mystery and detective fiction. I kind of put in the same group of writers like Joe R. Lansdale or Quentin Tarantino. Now, he works a lot with small press publishers, so sometimes his stuff is hard to get, but Dark Harvest is readily available. Uh, Dark Harvest is my favorite novel about Halloween. I'm eternally shocked that it hasn't been made into a movie yet. I'd love to see Michael Doherty direct an adaptation and maybe work with Partridge to add some other stories to it and make the movie another anthology like Trick or Treat. Uh, Michael Doherty has the perfect eye for this. Uh, Dark Harvest is about a coming-of-age trial where the boys of a small town have to hunt down the October boy each Halloween night. It's a ritual that is steeped in secrecy and darkness. It's like the great pumpkin Charlie Brown for gore and horror hounds. Um, Partridge often employs a second-person narrative to create a folksy tone that invites the readers into the small town feel of the setting, and I think it works perfectly. And here's an example of that. This is the opening to uh, Dark Harvest. A Midwestern town. You know, you know its name. You were born there. It's Halloween, 1963. And getting on toward dark. Things are the same as they've always been. There's the main street, the old brick church in the town square, the movie theater, this year with the Vincent Price double bill. And past all that is the road that leads out of town. It's black as a licorice whip under the October sky. Black as the night that's coming and the long winter nights that will follow. Black as the little town it leaves behind. The road grows narrow as it hits the outskirts. It does not meander. Like a planned path of escape, it cleaves a sea of quarter sections planted thick with summer corn. But it's not summer anymore. Like I said, it's Halloween. Ah, man, another fantastic introduction. I love an introduction that just kind of instantly pulls you into the story and the world that you are about to experience. Fantastic novel, Dark Harvest. Okay, so number five, coming up at number five, is The Complete Butcher's Tales by Ricky DeCornay, uh, originally published in 1980. Uh, Ricky DeCornay, is, she's one of the most exciting authors I've, I've ever read, and I'm so happy that she's she's writing today. She, she continues to publish. She just uh, published a short, uh, weird science fiction novella last year. Um, she's very brave and employs a strong and creative prose style. She's experimental and she tackles uh, a lot of taboo subjects. She works in a number of genres, but her work usually involves some kind of bizarre and unsettling weirdness. 
The Butcher's Tales contains nearly 60, uh, the complete Butcher's Tales contains nearly 60 stories in only 172 pages. Many are less than a full page long. Uh, these are mostly tone pieces. It's like a curioso, it's like a curioso cabinet um, in literary form. It's consistently great. And the best thing is that if you aren't liking one story, uh, the next one is literally only a couple minutes away. The stories are overflowing with bizarre and unnerving imagery and almost all deal with tone and atmosphere over plot and characterization. This is not a book for people who need strong character building and plot to enjoy. Also, more than a few of these stories are downright disturbing, like Thrift. And I'm going to read Thrift in its entirety to you because it is three paragraphs long. Okay, this is Thrift. The chosen infants are taken from their mothers after the sixth week. They are placed in specialized hospitals and tortured. Other, other than that, they are treated like other children, washed, hushed, scolded, and kissed. They are tortured every day at varying intervals for their entire lives. Within a few years, they are all fanciful, fancifully deformed. None live long. The oldest die broken and senile in 16. They never reach puberty or grow taller than four feet. However, individual members, hands, fingers, tongues, feet, and ears, develop and grow to miraculous lengths. When these children die, they are fed to the police dogs. Nothing on the planet is ever wasted. That's Thrift from Ricky to Cornet. Okay, and then coming in at number four. Uh, number four, a book that I have definitely... Uh, sung its praises on the Dungeon Dive before, and that is a fantastic anthology called To Sleep, Perchance to Dream, Nightmare, edited by Stefan R. Zemanowitz, uh, published in 1993, and it is from uh, Barnes and Noble uh, Publications. So I love horror anthologies, and this is easily the best I've ever read. If you only wanted to own one book of horror fiction, this would be the one to own. Uh, there are 30 stories here and they all they're almost all brilliant and all of the stories here work within themes of dreams and nightmares and the stories cover over 150 years of publication history so it's not just a great collection of stories but it's also a highly curated history of the horror short story form uh, the standouts here include the drunkard's dream by joseph sheridan le fanu uh, Three Lines of Old French by A. Merritt, The Black Stone by Robert E. Howard, Perchance to Dream by Charles Beaumont, uh, The Dream of the Witch House by H.P. Lovecraft, Dream of a Mannequin by Thomas Ligotti, and In the Flesh by Clive Barker. And I'm going to read just a, a little excerpt here from The Drunkard's Dream by uh, Sheridan Le Fanu, fantastic author here. This is my introduction to his work, Dreams. What age or what country of the world has not felt and acknowledged the mystery of their origin and end? I have thought not a little upon the subject, seeing it is one which has been often forced upon my attention, and sometimes strangely enough, and yet I have never arrived at anything which at all appeared a satisfactory conclusion. It does appear that a mental phenomenon so extraordinary cannot be wholly without its use. We know, indeed, that in the olden times, it has been made the organ of communication between the deity and his creatures. 
And when, as I have seen, a dream produces upon a mind to all appearance hopelessly reprobate and depraved, an effort so powerful and so lasting as to break down the inevitable uh, habits and to reform the life of an abandoned sinner. Um, very kind of a stilted kind of a purple prose, you would say, but very well written and a very interesting story there. So that was number four to sleep perchance to dream nightmare. Okay, now the top three here. So coming in at number three is by a little indie author by the name of Stephen King. And it's his book from 1983, and that is Pet Cemetery. Uh, Stephen King needs no introduction. He's one of the best-selling authors of all time, and in my opinion, rightly so. Probably one of the most famous and ubiquitous authors who ever lived. I remember growing up in the early 80s, and I would just see his books everywhere. You know, I could look around and see someone reading that old silver copy of The Shining. Um, I'd see that old red cover with the teeth of Cujo sitting out on a table at the library. Copies of it would be left on bookshelves in small hotels. When my family would rent a cabin and they would have books, I would be almost guaranteed to find an old copy of the Tommyknockers or Needful Things. Um, his books were just everywhere, and that's my favorite way to read his books is in the, the old Signet mass market versions. Uh, Pet Cemetery is not my favorite King novel, but it is my favorite of his horror novels. And that's because of how strong it is thematically. The entire book is just wallowing in its theme of death. King did a ton of research on burial practice and mortuary sciences in preparing for the book. And it shows. I just want to read this uh, his, his uh, brief introduction here. Here are some people who have written books telling what they did and why they did those things. John Dean, Henry Kissinger, Adolf Hitler, Carol Chessman, Jeb Magruder, Napoleon, Talleyrand, Disarali, Robert Zimmerman, also known as Bob Dylan, Locke, uh, Charl Charlton Heston, Errol Flynn, uh, Gandhi, Charles Olson, Charles Colson, a Victorian gentleman, Dr. X. Here are some people who have not written books telling what they did and what they saw. The man who buried Hitler, the man who performed the autopsy on John Wilkes Booth, the man who embalmed Elvis Presley, the man who embalmed badly, most undertakers say, Pope John Thirteenth, the two score undertakers who cleaned up Jonestown carrying body bags, spearing paper cups with those spikes custodians carry in city parks, waving away the flies, the man who cremated William Holden, the man who encased, uh, encased the body of Alexander the Great in gold so it would not rot, the man who mummified the pharaohs. Death is a mystery and burial is a secret. So death is a thing that humanity has a hard time with. Now, Pet Cemetery takes the grief and despair and the mystery of death and asks, what if death can be cheated? This is not an original horror idea. This idea predates even Frankenstein. But through King's charm, his folksy writing, and his wonderful characterizations, he has crafted one of the best horror-themed explorations of death I've ever read. And this is uh, King as a horror writer. I think this is him at the very, very top of his game. Okay, so number two, coming in at number two, is uh, by William Peter Blatty, and that is 1971's uh, The Exorcist. So William, P uh, William Peter Blatty 
uh, might be my favorite author, and he's at least in my top five. His trilogy of faith, including The Exorcist, The Ninth Configuration, and Legion, is my favorite trilogy. Uh, he is an incredible writer, capable of sharp wit and gut-busting humor, exquisitely composed prose, and he's also capable of creating some of the most genuinely terrifying stories I've ever read. From 1971 onward, Blatty became singularly obsessed with proving the existence of the Catholic God and the afterlife. He was a true believer. His short audio autobiography uh, entitled I'll Tell Them I Remember You is all about uh, his own supernatural experiences with his mother and how he believed that his mother communicated with him from beyond the grave. He incorporated his own supernatural experiences into his trilogy of faith, and each one is a work of Catholic apologetics. Uh, the Exorcist, like Stephen King, needs no introductions. It's one of the most popular and kind of infamous works of horror ever written and ever filmed. Its reputation as a film is one of gross-out horror, with people talking about a girl masturbating with a cross, uh, projectile vomiting across the room, while she screams obscenities and, and, and blasphemies in demonic voices. But it's much more than that. It's an attempt to examine the problem of evil existing in a world created by a benevolent God. It's an examination of the existence of evil, of evil helping a priest regain his lost faith. And ultimately, it's an examination of an act of self-sacrifice for an innocent. However, the real star of this novel, I think, is the dialogue. A Blatty is a master of dialogue, and I've never read dialogue that feels more natural, more real, and more human. I'm going to read an excerpt uh, from The Exorcist here, and this is uh, chapter one of part two. She was standing on the key bridge walkway, arms atop the parapet, fidgeting, waiting, while homeward-bound traffic stuttered thickly behind her as drivers with everyday cares honked horns and bumpers nudged bumpers with scraping indifference. She had reached Mary Jo, told her lies. Reagan's fine, by the way. I've been thinking of another little dinner party. What was the name of that Jesuit psychiatrist again? I thought maybe I'd include him in the... Laughter floated up from below her, a blue-jeaned young couple in a rented canoe. With a quick, nervous gesture, she flicked ash from her cigarette, and uh, the last in her pack, and glanced up the walkway of the bridge toward uh, the district. Someone hurrying toward her, khaki pants and blue sweater, not a priest, not him. She looked down at the river again, at her helplessness swirling in the wake of the bright red canoe. She could make out the name on its side, a priest. Footsteps, the man in the chinos and sweater coming closer, slowing down as he reached her. Peripherally, she saw him rest a forearm on top of the paper, on top of the parapet, and quickly averted her gaze towards a Virginia. Another autograph seeker, or worse, Chris McNeil? Flipping her cigarette butt into the river, Chris said coldly, Keep moving, or I swear I'll yell for the cops. Miss McNeil, I'm Father Karras. Chris started, then reddened, jerking swiftly around to the chipped, rugged face. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. She was uh, tugging at her sunglasses, flustered, then immediately pushing them back as the sad, dark eyes probed hers. I should have told you that I wouldn't be in uniform. The voice was cradling, stripping her of burden. The priest had clasped his hands together on the parapet, veined Michelangelo's sensitive and large. I thought it would be much less conspicuous, he continued. You seem so concerned about keeping this quiet. Guess I should have been concerned about not making such an ass of myself, Chris retorted. I just thought you were. 
Human? Harris finished with a faint wry smile. Chris appraised him and then nodded, nodding and returning the smile. She said, yeah, yeah. I knew that the first time I saw you. Uh, when was that? On the campus one day while we were filming. Hey, got a cigarette, father? Karis reached into his pocket, dipped into the pocket of his shirt. Can you go non-filter? Right now, I'd smoke rope. On my allowance, I frequently do. Smiling tightly, Chris nodded. Yeah, right. Vow of poverty. She murmured as she slipped out, uh, out a cigarette from the packet the priest was holding out to her. Karis reached into a trouser pocket for matches. A vow of poverty has its uses, he said. Oh yeah? Like what? Makes rope taste better. Again, a half smile as he watched Chris' hands that was holding the cigarette. It was trembling, the cigarette wavering in quick erratic jumps, and without pausing, he took it from her fingers, put it to his mouth, and cupping his hands around the match, lit the cigarette, puffed, and then gave it back to Chris, saying, Awful lot of breeze from all these cars going by. Uh, just such a fantastic exchange. I love reading Vladdy's uh, uh, characters and the way they talk to each other. Okay, and finally, finally coming in at number one, probably no surprise for uh, longtime viewers of the Dungeon Dive, uh, but that is from 1955, and that is from Raid Bradbury, and that is the October Country. And here it is, the ultimate October read. Uh, Bradbury, an absolute legend, a master of short fiction. Uh, Bradbury probably wrote more high-quality stories than any other author. He was one of the major contributors to science fiction, horror, and young adult fiction with books like Dandelion Wine, The Halloween Tree, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and The Martian Chronicles. His contributions to the world of genre literature cannot be overstated. The October Country is an exquisitely written love letter to all things Halloween, October, and Autumn. More than a handful of these stories are creepy as hell. Uh, growing up, I only ever read his science fiction, and it wasn't until my late 20s that I read any of his horror fiction. And I was shocked by how genuinely scary his stories were. But I shouldn't be, because he, I shouldn't have been, because he is such an effect, uh, just such a brilliant writer. Uh, he has a way with words, and how's that for the year's uh, biggest understatement? And the, uh, the standout uh, stories in the October Country include The Dwarf, Skeleton, The Jar, The Emissary, and The Small Assassin. Uh, any one of these stories would be any other author's like best story they ever wrote. And here it's just another story in a great collection. Uh, I'm going to read an excerpt uh, from The Jar. It was one of those things they keep in a jar in the tent of a sideshow on the outskirts of a little drowsy town. One of those pale things drifting in alcohol plasma, forever dreaming and circling with its peeled dead eyes staring out at you and never seeing you. It went with the noiselessness of late night and only the crickets chirping, the frogs sobbing off in the moist swampland. One of those things in a big jar that makes your stomach jump as it does when you see a preserved arm in a laboratory vat. Charlie stared back at it for a long time. A long time, his big raw hands, hairy on the roofs of them, clinching the rope that kept back curious people. He had paid his dime, and now he stared. It was getting late. The merry-go-round drowsed down to a lazy mechanical tinkle. Tent peggers back in back of a canvas smoked and cursed over a poker game. Lights switched out, putting a summer gloom over the carnival. 
People streamed homers and clicks and cues. Somewhere, a radio flared up, then cut, leaving Louisiana's sky wide and silent with stars. There was nothing in the world for Charlie but that pale thing sealed in its universe of serum. Charles' loose mouth hung open in a pink wheel, teeth showing. His eyes were puzzled, admiring, wondering. Someone walked in the shadows behind him, small beside Charlie's gaunt tallness. Oh, said the shadow, coming into the light bulb glare. You still here, bud? Yeah, said Charles, like a man in his sleep. The carny boss appreciated Charles' curiosity. He nodded at his old acquaintance in the jar. Everybody likes it, in a peculiar kind of way, I mean. Charlie rubbed his long jawbone. You, uh, ever consider selling it? Carney's boss's eyes dilated and closed. He snorted. Nah, it brings customers. They like seeing stuff like that. So yeah, really good. Uh, Bradbury writes a lot about carnivals and circuses and that kind of like creepy, weird um, October, those creepy, weird October evenings. But uh, that is from October Country. So yeah, so my top 10 horror books of all time here. We have number 10, Some of Your Blood by Theodore Sturgeon. Number nine, Teatro Grotesco by Thomas Ligotti. Number eight, The Divinity Student by Michael Sisko. Number seven, The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. Number six, Dark Harvest by Norman Partridge. Number five, The Complete Butcher's Tales by Ricky Ducournay. Number four, To Sleep, Perchance to Dream, Nightmare, edited by Stefan R. Zemanowitz. Number three, Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. Number two, The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. And number one, The October Country by Ray Bradbury. All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to this episode of the Dungeon Dive Hobbycast, and we will talk to you later. Bye-bye.